Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Is that all the oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. There's a certain image out in the world of the Mississippi Delta. We've all seen the pictures of ramshackle cabins alongside cotton fields. We read news stories about obesity and diabetes, about racism and poverty. But that isn't the full story of the Delta. When one woman dug in, she found it to be a place of extraordinary generosity. They would come to the back door, and she would have their food in a in a, one of those brown bags, and she would hand it out to them. She was a real, real woman because I, a lot of people wouldn't have fed those hobos. They would have been afraid of them, but she would just hand them a bag out the back door. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance. I'm Tina Antolini. Today, a group of church mothers whose take on their home paints a very different portrait of the Mississippi Delta. And many of their stories involve food. But before we dive into that, we've got something important to tell you about. Gravy has just celebrated its one-year anniversary. Now we wanted to make a special plug for the organization behind the podcast, the Southern Foodways Alliance. The SFA is headquartered at the University of Mississippi, but it is member-supported by people all over the country and the world. These members are chefs and home cooks, casual bloggers and professional food writers, tenured scholars and students new to the study of foodways. Each member values this organization for different reasons. At our symposium this fall, I talked to Ed Lee, who's the chef at 610 Magnolia in Louisville, Kentucky, and he told me his reason. For me, who, you know, I'm not white, I'm not from the South, I'm, I'm a New Yorker, and for me to sort of live this uh, kind of odd existence that I do as both an insider and an outsider living in Kentucky for the past dozen years, it's really important for me to gravitate towards an organization like this that accepts all of the sort of definitions of the South and all of the sort of interpretations and kind of takes my opinion and makes it just as valid as someone who is a, you know, born, bred uh, Southerner. Tandy Wilson, who cooks at City House in Nashville, appreciates the SFA for a different reason. I'm probably the complete opposite. Yeah. You know, I, I come, I'm like fourth generation in Nashville, and, and you know, I grew up in that part of town where you, you might think that the South is all white. And coming to stuff like this, you realize what's important. It's the people that build the culture that are the South. And, and you know, I grew up with only one side of the story, and it wasn't it wasn't all the good stuff, you know? So, like, the, being challenged is also opening your eyes. And, you know, you, if you come out of a challenge on the right end of it, then you've gained so much. And, and I think that we have to continue to be challenged. I think there's work to be done in this region and... and if we're not reminded of that, then it's all too convenient to not do the work. 
the challenge to learn and the SFA's welcoming community are only two benefits of membership. Rob Long, the SFA's board vice president, sees others. For me, it means that I, I know I'm a part of this organization that's doing great stuff in there, and I gotta be a part of this giant community of people who actually care in a serious but not pompous way, in a thoughtful but not pretentious way, in a fun way, care about what we eat and what we drink and why. And now the pitch. Think about becoming a member of the Southern Foodways Alliance. If you like smart talk, the SFA delivers. If you appreciate challenging narratives about the region, the SFA is your source. If you love good writing, you'll love SFA's award-winning Gravy Quarterly, that is our sister publication. And if you want to help us tell the stories of everyday men and women who shape the region through food, your membership dollars will support films and oral history projects and this podcast that do just that. The 2016 Southern Foodways Alliance membership drive has just begun. You can visit southernfoodways.org and click on the link to join. And now, back to today's episode. Hi, it's Melissa. And if you're looking for another great podcast from the South, then you have to check out No Small Endeavor, produced by our friends at Great Feeling Studios and PRX. Each episode, award-winning professor and Nashville native Lee C. Camp merges the worlds of philosophy, theology, the arts, and more to ask the question, how can we live a good life while nourishing the soul? Plus, it's the only show I know that features everyone from legendary actor and filmmaker Rob Reiner to Southern activist and author Anthony Ray Hinton. So go ahead, follow No Small Endeavor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and tell them Gravy said hey. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. When Alicia Burton Steele first moved to Mississippi a few years ago, she started taking drives around the Delta. And it reminded me of my childhood in Spartanburg, South Carolina, seeing the farmland, the old sharecropping homes, the old homes, the churches. And I wanted to pick up the phone and call my grandmother, and I couldn't. She had been gone. She died 20 years ago. Alicia is a photographer and a professor of journalism at the University of Mississippi. That drive around the Delta made her grieve for her grandmother all over again and play through memories of who she was. Her grandmother, Althenia Aiken Burton, grew up in Spartanburg, South Carolina. While Athenia and her family headed north to Pennsylvania during the Great Migration, the South and its food remained strong with them. I remember going to Spartanburg I just remember the peaches. I remember everything was peach. And I remember my aunt Cor, my great aunt. She had this house. It wasn't a sharecropper home, but it was on a dirt road. There were no paved roads there that I remember. And aunt Cor would make biscuits. And my grandfather loved them so much, he would eat them plain. No molasses, no honey, no jam. He ate them like cookies. And 
I remember her house was old and white. I remember the smells. And I started to see homes that looked like that in the Mississippi Delta. It just took me back to my childhood. And I wanted to say, Grandma, you're not going to believe what I'm seeing in Mississippi. And I just couldn't do that. So Alicia decided she needed to meet some of the Black women of her grandmother's generation, learn more of the stories of their lives that she couldn't turn to her own grandmother for anymore. She wanted to know what gave their lives shape and what had helped them endure both hardship and change. So I did what any normal person would do. I started calling churches. Yes, churches. To see if I could talk to a pastor, and none of them called me back. It took months, and I still could not get anyone to call me back. So I reached out to an owner of a blues club to introduce me to some pastors. The owner of that blues club introduced her to a pastor named Reverend Juan Self at First Baptist Church in Clarksdale, Mississippi. He also happened to be the architect who redesigned the Civil Rights Museum in Memphis. And Reverend Self said, I will talk to you about this project, but you have to come to church. And not only do you have to come to church, but you've got to have dinner with my family afterwards. So everybody interviewed me around that kitchen table. It was a test of sorts, to see whether Alicia was just another outsider with a camera come to the Delta to portray it as impoverished, backwards. She had to prove she was interested in something beyond that. So once he got the okay from me and got a good vibe, Then he introduced me to another pastor who introduced me to another pastor. In the end, I had 19 pastors helping me. Thanks to those 19 pastors, Alicia visited the homes of dozens and dozens of women, 54 in all. Elderly Christian women, mostly Baptists. They range from 66 to 103 years old. They're mainly church mothers, and let me explain a church mother. They are elderly women who are leaders in their communities, well-respected, some of them are educators, Um, but they help the pastors give communion, help with marital counseling, premarital counseling, baptisms, communion, that kind of thing. Churches were and are places of refuge and community centers for many African-Americans in the Delta. And these were women who helped run things at their churches behind the scenes. They were women who'd lived through the Jim Crow era and through the civil rights movement coming to Mississippi. And their stories gave those moments of history texture and depth. There's one woman, Miss Katie Richardson, who lives in Tunica, and she talked about picking cotton and how their overseer's sons would take baths in their drinking water. And they would throw dead possums in their drinking water. They would only have one barrel of water that everyone had to drink out of. If you ever drive down into the Mississippi Delta, the cotton fields, there aren't any trees in the fields. You know, I don't like the heat. It's, it's, it's like you can bite through it. It's suffocating sometimes. It, all I could think about when I, dri- when I drove past the cotton fields was I'm looking at this field and I'm like, there's no shade. There's, there's nothing to protect them against the elements. How hard is that? How harsh is that? What, what did it feel like with their backs bending over? What did it feel like with their fingers picking that cotton? Did they have gloves? You know, it's, I'm thinking about these things, and it's just, you know the history, but when you hear it from their voices, when you hear their words, 
and they're reliving it when they're telling you, it takes it to another level. But the stories weren't just about field work and those kinds of hardships. Somehow it always came back to food. Somehow the stories always came back to food. And I mean, the people that I interviewed, the mothers that I interviewed, they didn't consider themselves poor if they had food. And here is where the revelations really came. Thanks to Alicia and her work, which became the book Delta Jewels, here are some of the stories and voices of these church mothers. Miss Joyce Myers lives in Ruleville, Mississippi. And she talks about how she had a strained relationship with her mother. Her mother always seemed very hard to her. Her father was the lovable one. Her mother was the disciplinarian. When my mom would cook, she would always cook in uh, roast pans. She cooked a lot of food. And all the kids could come and eat. And she would tell us, she says, okay, I got this for Mildred now. I want you to take it down there. And, and we would have to walk. I don't care if it was muddy or whatever. We had to take that food down there. You know, she was a, a good Samaritan. And then when we lived where up in the compress quarters, the train ran through. And hobos used to be on the train. They would come to the back door, and she would have their food in, a, in a, one of those brown bags. And she would hand it out to them. She was a real, real woman because I, a lot of people wouldn't have fed those hobos. They would have been afraid of them. But she would just hand them a bag out the back door. They would get off the train. They knew where they could get some food. And evidently, the other guys had told the other guys they were hobos because every time the train came through, she had those bags sitting on the table, and she would hand them out to them. So she was a jewel of a woman to me. So this is Miss Curtisine Davis. She's in her late 60s, I think. Mrs. Davis lives in Leland, Mississippi. I miss my mom when she died. I was the oldest child at home. I was 17. Couldn't cook. I can remember, this is funny, I remember my dad was trying to teach me how to make biscuits. And I for, would forget the ingredients, especially have to, how you have to cut the shortening in there. And uh, I, I would forget to do that. And, and you would have to eat my biscuits when they were hot because Daddy said if they got cold, they would knock the dog out. <laughs> my rice always stuck to the bottom of the pot. I really didn't know how to cook rice till I got married. <laughs> so it was... It was <laughs> It's humorous, but uh, like I said, it was hard. Um, I had to learn how to cook fast. I had to take care of my little brothers and sisters. And it wasn't a bad life or a sad life. It was just a hard life. Jordan River, I'm down the ground. Oh, Jordan River, I'm Mrs. Davis that, that you listen to, her, she lived on a plantation, and part of the area on the plantation where she lived was called the Deadening, which isn't a very welcoming name for part of the plantation. It was called, the, it was the dead end of the plantation. And she said they didn't have a lot of money, so the families that lived on the plantation had to pull together. They had to pull their resources together to help each other during the, the cold months, the slow months, and it was a sense of community that, okay, well, you might not have lunch, but I'm going to have a ham sandwich for you in my lunchbox to share um, with my classmate, with my friend, because you, you didn't want to see someone else struggle. So there's a huge sense. They would 
butcher the hogs and share all of the meat so that no one was, was hungry or starving through the winter. This is Mrs. Uh, Leola Overton, and Mrs. Overton lives in Clarksdale, Mississippi. I, uh, God had to take me all the way down. I was looking for a job. I'd get up every morning and go look for a job. Mm -hmm. And I was walking down the street and I was thinking, I don't have any food, I don't have any money. And I went home and I looked at my children, all six of those children were looking at me because they were ready to eat. And I went in my house, went in the house, I went straight through, to, through the back door. And I went on to the next street, my godmother, Mary Hayro. I said, honey, my children are hungry and we don't have any food. Other than that, that's the first time I ever let my pride down to ask anybody for anything. I did that. She had a fish. She said, what? And she got in her refrigerator, started pulling food out of freezer. And then when she did all that, she gave me some money. And I, but I went to the store and bought some chicken wings. And I went home and fried chicken wings and cooked some rice. And I bought a loaf of bread for those children. And they ate. And they took the last time when they were home, they were saying. Those were the best chicken wings we've ever eaten, Mother. Lord, I can't thank, thank him enough. I can't love, love him enough. I can't lift him high for me to see. You don't know. This is Mrs. Morelli Evers, widow of slain civil rights leader Medgar Evers. And when I went to interview her, she immediately starts talking about Mr. Evers, which is fine. I want to hear, I want to hear her talk. I mean, her voice is just, it sings. But I didn't want to hear about him. I wanted to hear about her. And I did my research beforehand. I found out she was raised by her grandmother as well. And they say, Mrs. Evers, you were raised by your grandmother too. What was she like? And then she realizes that I'm there for her, not for Medgar. And she immediately starts talking about food. And she's talking about growing up with her grandmother, who was a wonderful cook and was an educator. But she quit her job as an educator to raise Mrs. Evers. She worked as a housekeeper for a very wealthy white family in Vicksburg. So she left the nurturing role to my grandmother, Annie. And she supplemented that by bringing home every Thursday, and I don't know why Thursdays were so critical, 
but she would bring home the leftover food from this white family's home. And she was a superb cook, but I was introduced to things like strawberry tarts, uh, cookies with chocolate frosting, um, chicken prepared in a different way other than the, the boiled or the fried. Um, and she would bring home the young girl in this white family. She would bring home her clothes for me. And all of the women in my family were great seamstresses. And I remember my grandmother and my aunt, my grandmother Annie and my aunt Merle, taking those clothes and ripping them apart and sizing them to fit me because they were too large. But I reached a point that I was weary of wearing that girl's clothes. And I said to my aunt, my mother, and, and, and my grandmother, Annie, I want my own clothes. And they said, well, baby, we don't have the money to get you clothes like that. I said, I don't care. I want my own. My grandmother took it upon herself to take a croaker sack. I don't know a croaker sack. <laughs> Okay. The, the cloth came from the flower socks. You would go to the store and you would buy writ dye, and I think you can still find it today. And you would dye those croaker socks different colors and cut it and make yourself skirts. We call them broomstick skirts. A broomstick skirt is one that has a band around the waist and you take the other cloth, the long part and skirt, and you gather it on this band, pin it, and that's it. I preferred that over the clothes that were given to me from the White House. I wanted to break some stereotypes. This is a very poor region, um, social economically, but it's also a very rich area. There's a lot of pride. There's a lot of uh, dignity and integrity. There's a woman in the book, Mrs. Lily Jackson. A lot of people might not know that name, but she's the widow of the funeral home director who prepared Emmett Till's body. And when I tried to to get her in the book. It took me four months to get her in the book, six phone calls. And she said, I'm not important. And I said, well, you most certainly are. And she said, no, but I'm not. I'm just one woman. But that was the, that was the point. With each woman's story, another thread of the tapestry of this place came through. Alicia says, in some ways, it made her miss her grandmother even more. But in the space left by her grandma, now all these women have come in. Oh, yes, I've gotten adopted. One time I took my husband Bobby to meet 
one of the women and she had a seven flavor pound cake that she had just made. And my husband had three pieces of pound cake that day. And not only that, but when he graduated with his master's from the University of Mississippi, she mailed him a pound cake. And it dawned on me that these women are known for their caramel cakes and their corn puddings and their steamed cabbage. And I needed to get these recipes together and collect them. And so I'm hoping to put a cookbook out. They are loving it. They're fretting over which recipes to include. I asked them all for two, and one woman gave me seven. But yeah, I have 54 new grandmothers, and even though I'm 45 years old, they still like to tell me what to do. Yes, and I know God, God is good to me. I see, yeah. yes, he's good to me. And he sacrificed his life. Audio of the Church Mothers was produced by Alicia Burton-Steele with her graduate assistant, Ji Ho. Alicia is working on a cookbook of those recipes, the proceeds from which will be divided evenly among all the women. You can find a link to her book of portraits and interviews, Delta Jewels in Search of My Grandmother's Wisdom, on our website, southernfoodways.org. It is full of gorgeous images of these women, some of which we've included on the website for you to see. Music for this episode was by the Como Mamas, a group of gospel singers from the small North Mississippi hill country town of Como. Their record, Get an Understanding, was made available to us for use in this episode, courtesy of Daptone Records. You can find more of their music at Daptone Records slash Como Mamas. And man, they are so good. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions and Pottington Bear. Our theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Sponsorship music is by Jazar. Thanks to Sarah Camp Milam and to Gravy's intern, Dana Bialik. Coming up, a taste of the next episode of Gravy. But first, with the December cold now upon us, it's time to warm up the kitchen. Doesn't duck gumbo sound delicious? Or Brunswick stew? You'll find these recipes and many others in the Lodge Cast Iron Cookbook. You can use your Lodge enameled cast iron Dutch oven to simmer these or other stews on the stovetop all day. Bonus, it'll warm up the kitchen as well as your belly. And don't forget dessert. The cookbook shares recipes for apple pies and berry cobblers, and you can bake those in your Lodge skillet. From bread to stew to dessert, Lodge Manufacturing makes cookware to help you with a complete winter meal. Coming up on the next episode of Gravy, the food of 1970s Charleston, South Carolina, and what it said about the Nouveau South. Back in the 70s, the most Southern thing happening in the South was avoidance of all things traditionally Southern. Tune in for that next time. You are listening to Gravy. I'm Tina Antolini for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And as you go about your daily life, please remember, make cornbread, not war. <laughs>